You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I'm Sarah Custer. And I'm Miranda Prynne. So here we are, almost exactly two years to the day since the pandemic began. And even though we're far from emerging from the crisis, we thankfully are far enough removed from it and that initial shock that we can now hopefully reflect a little bit on how our lives have changed, maybe in some ways even for the better. Miranda, do you have any um, silver linings from COVID? Actually, quite a few. I'm very alive to the huge difficulties and stresses that COVID has placed upon people. Mm. But I do think that one of the outcomes of all of that upheaval has been a much greater acceptance of the need for flexibility across all walks of life, really, from employers allowing people to kind of work where they need to from home and maybe sort of, you know, being a bit more flexible about hours and so on to how one studies on courses and, you know, if you want to do a class after work or something, you don't have to travel, in my case, an hour and a half across London to get there right. and catch up online and so on. So, you know, I think that is one big benefit. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this podcast is case in point. You're sitting in your home. I'm sitting in my home and we're recording this now. Um, I think one of mine is, and it's a bit related to what you just said about flexibility, is just connectivity. Um I'm obviously from the US, which some people may have been able to pick up on from my accent. Uh, And I've lived in another country as well. So I've got friends kind of scattered all over the world. And one thing that really happened during the pandemic was people would just call more and I would call them more and we would jump on calls and have as as tiring as the the cocktail hour on Zoom got. And it did get quite tiring. Still just having that connection with people in a new way I mean we were doing like workout classes together and it was just stuff that before the pandemic would have been so weird and we wouldn't have wasted time or spent time doing that together but now it it is kind of a normal thing and I'm hoping that that is something that will stay well into the future just this ability and I guess ease with connecting with each other in more virtual environments rather than just keeping it on text yeah absolutely it's a strange um sort of dichotomy that it limited our connection with people in certain ways, but hugely opened them in others. Mm, Definitely. And I know that when universities were forced to move all teaching and research online, then it wasn't quite clear how or to what degree that change would be permanent. Uh, And it's something that I think they are still figuring out. Um, But for this episode of the podcast, we wanted to speak with two people uh, to get their opinions about how higher education has been forever changed by the pandemic and perhaps for them to posit what their vision of its future might be. Yeah, so first up, we have Peter Matheson, Principal and Vice-Chancellor at the University of Edinburgh. And he spoke fairly candidly about how his priorities as an institutional leader have changed Um, hugely based on the fact that, you know, they had to shelve a lot of sort of longer term strategic plans when the pandemic struck. But actually, Peter definitely took a very positive, um, he had a very positive outlook and has very optimistic sort of, you know, real belief that the power and value of higher education will always prevail, whatever the circumstances. Hi, Peter. Great to have you here with us today on the podcast. Thanks very much, Miranda. It's a pleasure to be here. 
It's almost two years now since the pandemic triggered the first national lockdown across the UK, which seems like a good time to reflect on the dramatic changes this has reaped across higher education, not just in the UK, but globally. Now, Peter, your academic career stretches back four decades. I believe you were awarded your PhD at Cambridge in 1992. So, <laughs> um, so you must have borne witness to many fluctuations in UK and global higher ed. But in summary, how would you say the last two years compare? Well, I think the first thing to say is that it is deeply shocking to realise that it has been two years. I think the, the, um, the idea that this uh, external event has lasted so long and been so profound is itself, I think, kind of shocking and, 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 and worth taking stock of. Actually, there's a moment when that really became apparent to me, which was when we were welcoming our new students to the, to the university last summer, so about August, September, when the new students arrived in Scotland, um, it occurred to me, uh, in fact, one of my student presidents said to me, we were not just welcoming the new first years, we were actually also welcoming the second years, most of whom had never been to Edinburgh before. Um, that was really, really striking, I think, the fact that we'd got two cohorts at that time uh, that, that had been disrupted by the pandemic. So I think now here we are a few months further on and we're still dealing with it. So, um, yeah, I think the, the realisation that it's taken such a big uh, chunk of our, of our lives. Um, I suppose the biggest observation is that one of the goals for, for me and people like me is to um, think and work strategically. So we like to think in terms of the short, medium and longer term in the best interests of the university and what contributions can we make and how are we going to make lives better for our students and staff, et cetera, et cetera. We like to think that we, that we are strategic planners. And for two years, really, we haven't been able to do that. For two years, we've been consumed by what I would describe as firefighting, which is dealing with the immediate issues, often influenced by external events that are beyond our control. And that period of two years is long enough to have a very significant impact on the strategic planning that we would like to, to undertake. So we, you know, we published a new university strategy when I first got here, I forget exactly when it was published, but we published it after I'd been here about a year. And uh, we'd set a sort of 10 year horizon for that strategy document. And two of those years have already gone. Mm. Uh, and, we, and we've been dealing with the pandemic. So, so I think it has um, distracted us. Uh, and what we've been trying to do at the University of Edinburgh is concentrate on the learning. You know, we are a, we're, a, we're an institute of learning and we should learn from ourselves and from our recent experiences. Um, you know, we might discuss this a bit further, but I think there are some positives. I think there are some things that we can learn. And we've been trying to, to focus on those as a way of somehow making those two years not completely lost to the sort of strategic planning of the university. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's a really valid point that obviously out of any crisis, there are lessons um, alongside the huge challenges. Some of the points you made there are really interesting specifically of course as you say the fact you've had to um, do a lot of firefighting or be very reactive in the way that the university has been managed because of this constantly changing situation you pointed to the fact that obviously you have kind of prioritized focusing on the lessons that can be extracted but in terms of leading Edinburgh through this period how have your priorities changed in the kind of more immediate sense of staff support or how you are um, working with students or where your resources have been focused? We've, um, we've, we've, we've had to take decisions that we never would have had to take had it not been for the pandemic. Of that, there is no doubt. I mean, I suppose the, probably the single biggest example is that very early on, 
we paused our capital program. We had a very ambitious program of buildings and refurbishment and changes around the campus because we've got a very old campus. Lots of it is in need of modernization and there were lots of things that needed doing. And so we'd made this plan of how we were gonna go about it and how we would prioritize. And because of the threats posed by the pandemic in the early months, obviously we didn't really know uh, what it was, what was gonna happen. That was one of the big problems was that there was so much uncertainty, but there were predictions that no international students would be able to come. There were predictions that no home students would be able to, to come and, and that, that our research activities would be disrupted, et cetera. So our very core activities were, were under threat and we had to uh, insulate against that possibility. And so one of the things we did was we suspended our capital program and we then suspended it a year later. We suspended it again for another year um, because we didn't want to start spending money on projects that A, we weren't certain that we could afford and B, we weren't certain that we would need because we recognised that the world was changing. So um, that was just one a very early example. Of course, we, we've tried very hard throughout to prioritise the needs of, of our students and staff and to, mm. again, there's a sort of short-term aspect of that. You know, how do we shift online? How do we make sure that students that are isolating get fed and get looked after and get supported if they're if they're uh, on their own, et cetera, et cetera. So there were some very sort of immediate priorities that we needed to attend to. Um, but there was also the sort of the, the, the medium term, recognizing that a lot of our students are students that whose, whose last year or so of school has been disrupted. So they're, they're not only having their university uh, life uh, starting under very strange circumstances, but they're coming from a world that's already been disrupted. So recognizing those needs, trying to respond to them, trying to uh, do all of that whilst our staff were largely working from home, many of them with caring responsibilities or, or health worries of their own or their loved ones. It's been a very complicated mix. Of course. So it sounds like what, what you did very sensibly was prioritise the core mission of the university, the student teaching and learning, and obviously also supporting your staff. Your point about student cohorts coming in that have had a very, very different experience to previous student groups is pertinent. The next incoming group of students will have essentially had two, largely anyway, two years of remote learning and suffered potential learning gaps as a result of that. What do you think the implications are for this in terms of how universities, Edinburgh or any other, provide their teaching and learning and, and student support? Well, they're very profound. And I think the, the people to tell us are actually the students themselves. So rather than me sort of assuming what they would need or how they would feel differently, I think we should ask them and listen to them and respond to them. And we are trying to do that both before they get here and, and after they get here, um, because you know, they're the ones that really can identify their needs better than someone like me. But, but I think we have to be responsive. I think I, I have a sort of supreme confidence in university education in the sense that I think it's a it's a transformational experience, which anybody who's got the ability to experience that should get the chance. So this is a sort of fundamental belief of mine around widening participation and whatnot, that you know it shouldn't be according to means or or, or accidents of birth. It should be available to everybody. And, and, and that's obviously an imperfect science. We, we've, we've made some progress on that here, both before the pandemic and during it. But there's, there's a sort of goal of saying that it should be available to everybody, irrespective of uh, means. But I also believe that one of the major areas of benefit of a university experience is everything that happens outside the classroom. So whilst we can replace the classroom in some ways with online uh, uh, technologies, and, and we and other universities have done that very successfully, 
largely, I would say Edinburgh, because we were in a good starting position because we were already pretty good at some aspects of digital education. And I've got some colleagues here that literally wrote the textbook on hybrid uh, forms of education. So long before the pandemic. So, you know, we're lucky to have such people. Mm. Um, but we we can't so easily replace all the stuff that happens outside the classroom you know, meeting people from all over the world living in what in my opinion is one of the world's great cities where you've got a fantastic cultural scene you've got beautiful countryside and seaside and everything else nearby and so we've had this belief which i absolutely firmly uh, still continue to advocate which is that it is in our students best interests to be here to be in edinburgh that's been quite difficult for many of them to get here whether if they're international students or even sometimes even if they're home students the travel's been restricted uh, there's been all sorts of constraints and there's been all sorts of arguments that says why do we need to be there if we're getting our education online and the answer is because there's so much more about a university experience in a place like Edinburgh that can't be replaced just by having online classes and, and, and somehow trying to maintain that continue to provide some of that experience in very difficult circumstances i think has probably been the, the one of the hardest aspects of, of what we've had to do and as you say particularly with universities like edinburgh who are, which i should say are in such fantastic locations there are definitely online evangelists who would say that in terms of the edu the, the pure teaching side it can be done brilliantly online but as you say there is a kind of more holistic aspect to what one gains from university there is a bit of rhetoric that that I've heard a lot of, which sort of suggests that online is bad and face-to-face -face is good. Um, and, and I don't accept that. I mean, I think online can be excellent and can be very effective in terms of achieving learning outcomes. And, and you know, one of the main arguments for that is that we were doing some of that before the pandemic anyway, because yeah. A, it's a, a way of giving accessibility to education to people that aren't able to travel uh, or, or, or got other commitments to the people who are working and want to do stuff in the evening or something. So, you know, there's, there's, there's all sorts of uh, accessibility issues, but also there's good pedagogical evidence, evidence that, you know, the, the old fat format of a lecturer standing in front of a big lecture theatre of hundreds of students isn't necessarily the best way to educate people. So we were already thinking about some of these things. It wasn't uh, wholesale. It was very much more incremental um, and, and probably patchily applied. But um, the idea that everything that's online is a bad thing and therefore we should move back to being face-to-face -face is not something that I think aligns with what we were doing prior to the pandemic. Like most things, I think there's, um, there's a middle way, isn't there? There are benefits of both. And ideally, if, if you can kind of extract the advantages of, of online alongside the on-campus experience, then um, it provides that flexibility and you know, caters to different needs. Just briefly on the subject of students, how are enrolments looking? Because there's been a lot in the last couple of years, a lot of concerns expressed around international enrolments inevitably dropping and EU student numbers. But then I've read conflicting reports about those numbers and domestic enrolments appear to be fairly healthy. So how is it looking for Edinburgh? It's actually looking very positive. So last year, uh, our numbers were up in every category except EU. You'd expect numbers of EU students in Scotland to be down because prior to Brexit, a student from the EU would be able to get the same tuition fee guarantee that a Scottish domicile student can get. Um, and so EU students were able to come to Scotland without paying upfront tuition fees. Um, that ended with Brexit and they, they, they therefore obviously much less likely to come. Uh, we've been pleased that they haven't gone down to zero. They've gone down to something like 40% of their previous level. So there has been a reduction in EU students coming to Scotland. 
and we were one of the ones, one of the universities that took the largest number of, of students from the EU in Scotland. So um, that has affected us. Every other category of students, uh, and that's home students from Scotland, what we call our UK, the rest of the UK, uh, international students from outside the Europe. Um, uh, those numbers are all up, both undergrad and postgrad. They were up last year. We're seeing very buoyant um, uh, application numbers. We, we are a selecting university. Obviously, we're, we've always been oversubscribed with more students that are qualified to come here than, than we're able to take. But there's been no sign of that dropping off. And, and obviously, we can't be complacent about that. But I've been very pleased to think that the demand to come here has remained very strong. As for the current year, obviously, it's still fairly early days. But application numbers, again, look to be up again. Uh, so we're, we're seeing quite strong demand for places and a strong competition of, of high quality students and, uh, from, from, from all over the world. And of course, we're thrilled about that. It shows that people do place huge value in, in higher education. And on that note, I'm keen to discuss actually the, the changes in public expectations of universities triggered partly, I think, by the pandemic and, and possibly due to longer term trends. Alongside this, there's been arguably increased government intervention due to the pandemic. With these kind of changing demands from government, changing demands or expectations of, of students and, and the wider public, how can institutions respond to this or how, how are you responding? So I think, um, firstly, I'd say that as a publicly funded organisation, we recognise that the the, the students, the, the, uh, the, the guardians of that public money uh, expect us to be responsive in terms of how the money is 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 spent and accounted for and managed etc so we are a public body and therefore government is going to take an interest in us obviously in scotland it's complicated because i have education is devolved so i have a scottish government that basically sets the most of the guidelines that we need to um, adhere to but i also have a relationship with the uk government a lot of our research funding comes from the uk aspects of foreign policy, immigration, et cetera, and whatnot, is all managed, obviously, uh, in Westminster. So, so we have this additional complexity of having two governments to, to deal with. Um, but the fact that government's taken interest in us is, uh, in, a, in a sense, almost uh, part of the, the landscape. You know, we are, we are funded by, by substantially by public money. Um, I think the government uh, has looked to universities in the UK and indeed all over the world, governments have looked to universities for some of the solutions to the pandemic. And so there's this, there's this great idea, which is that somehow people will appreciate universities more now in the light of what's happened in the last couple of years than they might have done before. I think that's partly true, but I think it's been slightly overestimated. People who want to know and understand what goes on in the university probably already did. They may not know the details, but if, if a vaccine is going to come from somewhere, it's probably going to be invented by a scientist working in a laboratory somewhere. And in the UK, most of those scientists working in laboratories are doing it in universities. So it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy that if you want a scientific solution to something, you have to look to see where the scientists are. And in the UK, they're mostly in the university. So um, I, I do think that that's been good. I do think the, the, the level of scientific input from my university and from others, not just medical science, but also you know, population science, behavioral science, economics, uh, etc. Um, I think the extent to which universities have been able to provide advice and expertise has been very gratifying, but it didn't tell me anything I didn't know already about universities. I already knew we had this reservoir of expertise and it's great to be seeing it applied. Unfortunately, uh, there is always an intersection between science and policy, and um, the idea that politicians have to make political decisions is something that hasn't been changed by the pandemic. You could say it's been made even more prominent by the pandemic. 
Uh, and and we, you know, we, have to, we have to live with that. My, my, my job of running a university would be much easier if I didn't have to worry about politics, but uh, not worrying about politics isn't living in the real world. Yeah, which is probably true of many, well, true of virtually all sectors. In terms of looking ahead, and uh, as you say, the last two years have thrown a lot of the original sort of strategic plans you had in place, thrown them slightly off um, their original trajectory as you adapted to this incredibly fast and changing situation. So what are you now putting in place to try and future proof Edinburgh's teaching, research and many other activities against future crises and just ongoing uncertainty? I guess I'd come back to the point about learning from our recent experience. I think we're, we're looking at new ways of working. We've consulted our staff and, and about 90% of our staff are interested in some form of, of hybrid working. So some kind of mixture of doing things the old ways, if I can put it that way, and, and, and continuing to, to learn from some of the experiences we've had in the last couple of years. So, so we're doing that in terms of ways of working. That has implications then for how many office spaces we need and how we use our offices, et cetera. In terms of the teaching activities, um, we are seeing an appetite for face-to-face -face teaching, uh, which the students are enjoying now that we're back doing it. But I do also think that things that we've done effectively, for example, lecture recordings, we, I mean, we did, we provided those before the pandemic, but um, they, they've been popular with our students. So the idea that you can either go to the lecture or you can see it as a recording, or you can do what many students do, which is do both go to the lecture and then use the recording as a sort of revision or as a, as a backup. I think those kinds of things will be, will be here to stay. So I think there's definitely some ways we'll do things differently as a result of the, the last couple of years. And I think also future-proofing for, for, for me and for my senior team cons also consists of trying to horizon scan and trying to say, well, what, you know, what will be the next external event? We, we, by definition, these things are difficult to predict, but we've got to learn from what's happened in the last couple of years about how to increase our resilience for the future. And I suppose you know, one example for me is that a big part of our um, income is what we call uh, accommodation, catering and events. So ACE is, is, our, is our setup where we run conferences and we provide accommodation. Obviously, Edinburgh is a big tourist destination. In the summer months, we have the festival and the fringe normally, uh, and we provide accommodation for, for people attending or participating in the fringe and the festival. The last couple of years that didn't happen because the festival was cancelled and so and it happened a bit in uh, 2021 but it was it was limited um, and so that source of activity for us and income and the sort of the vibrancy of the city in the summer months has been very badly affected by the pandemic and so we've learned that we cannot count on that you know we we hope it'll all come back this year happens to be the 75th anniversary of the festival and so they were planning a big Fandango in 2022 anyway because of the anniversary and it'll be a sort of a rebirth year I think for the cultural sector in Edinburgh but we can't exist in isolation from the city we don't want to we are part of the city we want to contribute to it and we have to learn that sometimes these things just can't be taken for granted and so we have to plan for uh, scenarios whereby some of the things which we thought we could take for granted uh, are not quite as reliable as we thought. Of course and, and the knock-on effects of the pandemic were much greater. There are sort of so many smaller unforeseen things that then have a big impact that wouldn't necessarily be considered as core. So you, you talk about that kind of accommodation provision around the festival, you know, alongside the obvious impact on your teaching and your staffing and all the rest of it. To end, to end on a positive, 
you've touched on a few things already that are kind of lessons that you will be taking forward from this but what what would you say are the silver linings to what has happened in the last two years that that you can carry forward I think for me it's um, probably best epitomized by our graduation ceremonies we weren't able to have in-person graduation ceremonies for um, uh, a, a, two, two seasons, basically, most of uh, 2020 and, and most of 2021. And at the end of 2021, uh, in about November last year, we held in-person graduation ceremonies for the first time for uh, a couple of years. And the joy of those ceremonies, I mean, I've, I've got years of experience of doing graduation ceremonies, and I never get tired of them. They're always exciting and, and fulfilling and enjoyable because you see the, the smiles on the faces of the of the graduating students and of their loved ones and indeed of the staff of the university in a sort of very public celebration of why we're here and why we do what we're doing being able to get back to that was absolutely uh, invigorating and so for me I think it just sort of illustrates that we have these people these young people with great potential we provide them with an environment in which we think that they'll flourish and we see the end results and that's very very satisfying and I, I would say that um, I wouldn't have spent my entire adult life working in higher education unless I thought it was uh, an important and valuable mission. And I, th I do think that education probably has even more significance in combating inequality and combating the, uh, the impacts of the pandemic. Our mission has become even more important than it ever was before. So there's a sort of validation of, of what we do. And for me, it was the graduation ceremonies. It was getting back to that and seeing people in real life. Uh, experiencing the joy of completing their university course. And that's, a, that's, I think, a really nice message to end with, the fact that in many ways I think we'll all extract more explicit joy from possibly things that we took for granted before that we now realise just how wonderful and important they were. So <laughs> let's end it there. Thank you so much for joining us today, Peter, and we hope to speak to you again soon. My pleasure, Miranda. Thank you very much. Okay, so after hearing that from Peter, one thing that I would like to add to my silver linings list is this kind of novel joy of just not taking for granted those small moments of face-to-face -face interactions with peoples and the, the ability to have those face-to-face -face interactions. It's nice to have a kind of newfound appreciation for something that previously would have just been kind of business as usual. Yeah, I completely agree. I think you know, the pandemic has made us appreciate these things partly because, of course, we now realise that in a crisis, they are not a definite and we mm. can lose them. Mm, definitely. Well, up next, we spoke with Anant Agarwal, uh, a man who wears many hats. He is the co-founder and CEO of edX, the massive open online course platform started by MIT and Harvard. He's still a professor at MIT, and he is now the chief open education officer at 2U, the company who recently acquired edX. And he's quick to point out in this interview uh, that his title is COEO which I got wrong at the beginning of our conversation. My conversation with Anon is a nice compliment to the interview that you did with Peter Miranda, um, because Anon is kind of, he struck me as kind of this professor of the future. He's obviously been doing 
online teaching and learning for a number of decades. Uh, and he started a, a, the first MOOC platform and he was at the very forefront of the whole MOOC revolution that started back in 2012. So hearing him talk about his response to the pandemic and what he thinks some of the silver linings are and, and what he thinks the future of higher education uh, could and should be was quite interesting. So Anant, you are uh, the founder of edX. You are the newly minted CEO of 2U, but you are also still a professor at MIT. So can you start off by telling me how your own teaching perhaps shifted in response to the pandemic back in 2020? Sure. Uh, uh, to clarify one thing, though, Sarah, I'm the newly minted chief Open Education Officer at 2U, uh, which is CEO, which is COEO. Okay. <laughs> That's a, um, that's a new title I've not heard of, but okay, Chief Open Education Officer. Okay, great. great. Um, so I've been uh, I've been a professor at uh, MIT for thirty four years now, starting in uh, uh, early twenty. Uh, uh, oh my goodness, nineteen eighty eight, <laughs> and uh, you know certainly on campus, the whole world um, had to pivot from in person uh, teaching and learning to fully online. Uh, you know, teaching and learning. And so, uh, you know, certainly as I talk to my colleagues and others at MIT, um, it was very clear that the early learnings at many universities like MIT who partnered with edX uh, really came in handy where many universities like, you know, MIT and Harvard and UT Austin and, uh, uh, you know, Oxford and Cambridge and many other um, edX partner universities had already been working on online learning well before the pandemic and applying digital technology to learning. Mm. And so for many universities that had already been in the process of innovating and, and bringing in online modalities into the classroom, um, you know, I would say they had uh, they were able to pivot to online teaching uh, in a you know, much more efficient manner than many of the universities that um, you know, had never uh, and professors, for that matter, who had never worked with the online mm. learning. Mm. And so, so for many universities who'd been doing MOOCs on edX, for example, or many of our partner universities uh, at you who'd already been offering online degrees, you know, many, uh, many faculty did not miss a beat. And so uh, for others, uh, it was very new. I still remember a, uh, a meeting that I, a faculty meeting that I attended at MIT in the early days of the pandemic, where one of the professors commented, you know, after having done a online, a fully online uh, lecture, that uh, when all the students were engaged on the discussion forums and you know sharing emojis and questions and things like that, you know, where he commented in a, a faculty meeting that uh, his first online lecture uh, in the middle of the semester was uh, in his mind uh, his most successful and engaging lecture all semester, mm. and so um, you know, many professors discovered online learning, uh, online teaching for the first time. Mm. A lot of students discovered online learning for the first time. Mm. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, reactions ranged broadly. But I think as we are coming to the tail end of the pandemic, at least as far as we can tell now, um, faculty and students have a much better understanding of online learning. And various surveys that uh, we have conducted uh, seem to indicate that is much more openness to online learning than uh, ever before. 
I'm curious to know though about, about you specifically. I mean, are you still in the classroom on a semester basis? I mean, were you teaching during the pandemic? And I'm curious to know how you, as a as an expert in online teaching and learning, even before all this happened, what your response to it was, or was it just kind of like, okay, business as usual for you, not much of a change? Well, for me, uh, I had pivoted to online teaching uh, along with edX. So I was the founder and uh, also CEO uh, of edX, where MIT and Harvard had jointly helped, uh, you know, and, and founded uh, uh, edX.org. And uh, I was teaching three of the courses on edX, completely mm-hmm. online. And these were courses that um, I had taught in MIT as well for uh, many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and along the way, and this was well before the pandemic, we'd also performed some uh, a pretty impactful A-B tests where, uh, you know, my colleagues and I uh, took a circuit course at MIT and roughly half the students took it fully online on edX and roughly half the students took it fully in person. And we actually wrote papers about it in 2017, years before the pandemic. And we showed that uh, the online modality, you know, by and large has as good a quality and, and provides students with less stress and more flexibility. And so... Um, but in my case, as the CEO of edX, uh, I continue to teach online on the edX platform. And so, uh, uh, you know, uh, since starting edX, I did not teach in person. And frankly, mm. um, in my very first course on edX, which was an online course on circuits, I had, uh, you know, 155,000 students um, from 162 countries enrolled in the course and uh, 7,500 students passed an MIT mm. hard course. Mm. And, and this frankly, was back in 2012 when, when that was still quite a novel experience. Uh, quite a novelty. Yeah. And very big numbers. And so, mm-hmm. so for me, uh, if I were to ever go back into the classroom, uh, you know, and teach 50 or 100 students, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, clearly I would be thinking to myself, uh, you know, is this the right way to do it? When I right. know mm-hmm. that various experiments at MIT showed that the online modality was much more accessible, much more scalable and similar quality as uh, in-person learning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so for this episode of the podcast, Anant, we are taking an opportunity to take stock and look back at the last two years, um, really examining how the pandemic has perhaps forever changed higher education. Um, spoiler alert, I've read your LinkedIn posts, the three series that you wrote about, or the three-part series that you wrote about the future of education. So I, so I have an idea of what your response to the question about how it has forever changed higher education will be. So if we could just start there, and I think your answer would probably be around blended learning and that that's really the future of higher education and where we're going. And you say in one of those blogs, quote, the the institutions that realize this first will be the ones to mold the blended learning landscape and will undoubtedly benefit from supporting students and faculty in this way. So I'm wondering if you could unpack that for us a little bit in terms of blended learning. I mean, it it isn't anything that's new, but it sounds like what you're saying is there are still so many more options to explore here and an opportunity to really shape the next phase of higher education teaching. Absolutely, yeah, Mm -hmm. Sarah. You know, blended learning is where you combine both the in-person modality with uh, online learning at the same time. So even for students who are on campus, imagine that you can have students watch videos on their own time at midnight if they want to, uh, at their own pace where they can rewind the videos and so on, which you, you know, can't do in a lecture hall. You can't rewind a talking professor, you know, try that, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, it's risky. And so uh, uh, you do that uh, online while maybe you come to class and you engage with learners in discussions and engage with the, the professor in a Q&A sessions or do some labs 
uh, maker projects. So that's an example of blended learning where you're mixing kind of the best of blending, the best of online and in-person. I really see that as the future. And, uh, and there's many ways as you unpack the blended learning, there's many different ways of doing it. And I think uh, the book has not been uh, has not even been started on all the possible ways in which you can do blended learning. One mm -hmm. example that I mentioned is sort of the flipped class approach where you kind of do what was a lecture online and then you come into class for you know solving problems and things like that. There are other approaches where the blending might not be within the same course, but you can imagine taking traditional courses and breaking them up into two courses. One is fully online where you do a lot of the theory and foundations and so on. And then another course is a fully engagement with uh, maybe discussions and a project mm -hmm. and so on, which mm -hmm. you do in person. And so there's many different ways in which you can blend. Uh, another example, which leads to kind of modular stackable learning is where rather than coming to a university uh, for a full uh, online, I'm sorry, for a full in-person undergraduate or a master's degree, what you do instead is you complete a, modular piece of the degree called a micro bachelor's or a micro master's completely online. And then you go to a campus uh, to complete the degree. So that's an example of modular stackable mm -hmm. learning. It's mm -hmm. also another form of hybrid or blended learning where a piece of your educational experience for the degree is completely online. And then a piece of the experience is in person. So there's many, many different ways in which you can meld online learning and in-person learning. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think uh, that's really the future. And those universities and leaders uh, that embrace it are really going to take the universities to the next level. And you know, as I talk to uh, university leaders, I say, this is the moment. <laughs> uh, faculty and learners have all experienced online learning. They're open to it. In fact, some of our surveys show that 68% uh, you know, of um, uh, students want, um, you know, strongly agree or somewhat agree that they want, uh, prefer having more online app, uh, online options options in the classrooms. The faculty are also uh, looking for more online and hybrid options. And so this is the moment for us to, uh, for university leadership to, to kind of seize and, you know, uh, create change and innovation and digital transformation in universities. Mm-hmm. Um Let's talk a little bit about faculty development, which is a topic that we've discussed quite a bit on, on THE campus. And clearly the future of blended learning requires um, some faculty upskilling. Quite a few people are much more comfortable with teaching online than they were at the beginning of 2020, but arguably there's still quite a bit to go in terms of making sure that those skills exist within universities. Are there any job titles that you would identify that are needed now that perhaps didn't exist three years ago? Oh my goodness, this is such an exciting topic and I'm glad you asked the question, Sarah, in that teaching online requires new skills. Similarly, let's not forget the learner. You know, the whole world is becoming more learner-centric today than it ever was uh, mm. before the pandemic. Mm. We also need new skills and learners on how to learn online. And what is interesting is that, uh, you know, we joke that there's an app for that. You know, I like to joke that there's an online course for that. So on edX.org, for example, we have many courses on how to teach online. Okay. We also have a course called Blended X that talks that uh, creates and you know, teaches skills on how to teach in a blended model of learning. It's called Blended X. Similarly, we have courses on how to learn online, you know, uh, helping learners understand. It's one of mm -hmm. our most popular courses on edX. It's a very short course in a few hours that learners can learn uh, interesting skills and upskill themselves to be able to learn online. But your point about other new roles and so on, you know, 
let me unpack that uh, question and address it in the following way. Teaching before was often a very lonely sport, mm. a lonely endeavor. You know, as a faculty member, you lectured, uh, you, you might, if you're lucky, you might have had a teaching assistant and you created exams and homeworks and you graded them. And I still remember the big pizza parties uh, we would have to sit down and eating copious amounts of pizza, grade hundreds of papers and exam papers. So it was, it was a pretty, it, it was a sport where, uh, an, an endeavor where the professor and perhaps the TA did all the work. But with online learning, I see it becoming, and it is much more of a team sport team endeavor, where you have the instructor who thinks about the pedagogy and material and, and uh, what learners should learn and things like that. Uh, uh, I can imagine support teams. So in my own online course uh, that I developed at MIT, uh, I think we had a cast of uh, maybe, I would say, 10 people. So uh, some of the new roles, you know, beyond faculty and teaching assistants, the new role was uh, we had a videographer that helped with creating videos. We had a video editor who helped mm -hmm. with editing videos. So, for mm -hmm. example, uh, in the videos, you know, you can often speed things up and slow things down depending on, uh, you know, what can be most efficient for the learner. Uh, we had an instruction designer. Instruction designer is a completely new role. And I think it will become one of the most important and, and common roles in universities going ahead where the instruction designer works with the faculty member to bring technology into learning and mm -hmm. helps work with the faculty to say, look, here's how you can modulate your lecture. Um, so as an example, at MIT, I gave one-hour lectures. And when I uh, created my first online course for edX, uh, my first instinct was, yeah, you know, I'm, here's this recording, a one-hour recording of my lecture. Let's slap it on the website and I'm done. Hallelujah, this is awesome. But no, the instruction designers, you know, uh, talked me into doing something different. They had me re-record all the videos into short snippets, short three, four, five minute videos. And my colleagues and I created finger exercises that went within the videos. And a lecture became what we call on edX a learning sequence that promotes active learning, which is an interleaving of videos and exercises where students are in the Socratic method, so to speak, applying what they learn almost immediately. Mm -hmm. And so it's a completely different way. And the skills needed to create short videos, engaging videos, versus uh, you know, long lectures on the board mm. are completely different. It's, it's so different. And, and in many ways, it's very empowering. And as a faculty member, it's, it's, it's fantastic because I don't have to, semester upon semester, I don't have to give the same lecture. Instead, I can be focused on a set of videos and assessments. And every semester, I could be adding and incrementally making changes around the edges or adding new things. So it's much easier as a faculty member. These are all new skills and also requires a new team of instruction designers, video editors. Also, in many cases, if you want to create interesting problem types like a simulation or a, or a new kind of gamification, uh, you may also you know, uh, need an engineer uh, to mm -hmm. help code something up. Uh, mm -hmm. There are also tools available in the market where you have many of these things, like on the edX platform, we have 54 different assessment types. And so you now learn how to create these assessments using tools. So these are all new roles and new uh, uh, skills that uh, as faculty, you know, we have, to, uh, we have to learn to create engaging new online, uh, you know, uh, teaching versus, you know, what you might think a lot of people did during Zoom, uh, I'm sorry, during the pandemic where, you know, you had long one-hour Zoom sessions. Mm -hmm. That is not online uh, teaching and learning. It might be online teaching, but it is not online learning. Mm -hmm. And so 
really you have to create much more engaging uh, approaches that have uh, been invented in the past few decades by learning scientists in terms of the best way to increase learner outcomes. Hmm. I mean, what you just described about teaching going from a, a solo sport to a team sport is, is a pretty massive shift in, in higher education, teaching and learning. Is it safe to draw any parallels between the moment that universities find themselves in now and, and the moment that you were a groundbreaker in 10 years ago, whenever MOOCs first arrived on the scene? Is it fair to say that this is a similar type of age of transformation? Yes, it is. When we started uh, uh, with uh, uh, edX at the MIT and Harvard and many of our partner universities, Berkeley and others, um, we were all breaking new ground in terms of new courses and so on. But at that time, many of the tools did not exist. So on edX.org, for example, we did not have edX Studio, which is a cloud-based authoring system. And so creating the problem sets on edX required me to, you know, and my colleagues to program, to write, write computer science programs and automatic graders. But today, 10 years later, all of this has been automated. And with push-button ease, faculty can create new courses. But fundamentally, in terms of it becoming a team sport and having a team, uh, that is completely true today, where many universities have built capacity and created these teams that can work with professors and help them create online courses. So they've built the capacity. I think one of the big differences, though, is uh, the two big differences. One big difference is that today, 10 years later, we have much better understanding and much better tools available that make it much easier to author courses. Hmm. And the second thing that's different is the scale. In the early days, 10 years ago of MOOCs, you know, we were creating two or three or four courses. And so uh, you could write computer science programs to do it. But now we want thousands and you know, maybe even millions of faculty members creating lots of courses. So the tooling and automation has become incredibly important. So the scale, the scale of authoring, the scale of teaching has suddenly increased dramatically today. Hmm. Hmm. Um, playing devil's advocate here a little bit. Um, one thing that you haven't really mentioned in, in any of your arguments is um, how to tackle di digital poverty and what what sort of role kind of the digital gaps, massive infrastructure gaps that even exist in countries like the United States. If we're talking about scaling higher education, putting learners at the center, are we not creating a system, a two-tiered system here where people who have a strong connection to do online learning are the ones who win and the ones who don't just miss out? Uh, Sarah, I think it's the exact opposite. You know, digital technologies have shown us time and time again that ultimately they have the impact of democratizing a resource. Uh, you know, imagine when we had really, really expensive uh, AT&T, you know, those beige boxy telephones, uh, you know, in the late 70s. Uh, uh, and in India, few people had landlines. But today, everybody's running around with a cell phone. It's just, it's democratized uh, communications. Similarly, I believe that online learning will democratize education. Far more people in any country, whether the US or any part of the world, far more people have access to mobile devices and bandwidth than they have access to a physical uh, quality university, a bricks and mortar institution to go and learn. So I think it's the exact opposite where even today because of selectivity and the lack of resources on campus, you know, uh, oftentimes uh, a few percent of people that apply can come to campus. In IIT, Madras, where I went to college, the IITs are probably the most uh, uh, difficult to get into where they admitted 1%, one out of 100 students that applied. 
And uh, even in the United States, some of the top institutions accept, uh, you know, three, four, five, six percent of the learners that apply. So, so I think online learning can be much more democratic because mm. you don't have campus resource limits that limit how many people you can admit. And but, with some but, of the degree programs on 2U, for instance, um, the uh, the number, the degree programs and boot camps in many of these programs, uh, over 50% of the students who are coming in are from underserved, you know, minorities mm-hmm. and uh, with underserved backgrounds where, mm-hmm. uh, you know, frankly, if not, many of them are working. Many of them have some college, uh, uh, some credit, but no degree. Uh, they need the flexibility. There's mm-hmm. no way they can quit their jobs and go to a campus and get a full degree. I mean, degrees are really important. So what are they doing instead? One, they are joining uh, degree programs fully online and being very successful. Uh, second, many of them of, to whom even a full degree is difficult are taking the more modular alternative credential approach and doing micromasters or professional certificates or boot camps and uh, you know, earning jobs. Just as one example, um, you know, Jeffrey Jenkins uh, was a former FBI agent and he was inspired to get his master's uh, of legal studies completely online from Washington University, uh, you know, after he suffered a, uh, you know, a near fatal car accident. And, uh, and he wanted to help advocate for families, uh, you know, for others living with disabilities. It's just one story, an incredible success story, where a person could make use of online learning and uh, take themselves to the, uh, uh, you know, to the next level. And many students said that, um, you know, these online programs being available, they really democratize education for them. They could never have, uh, you know, gone ahead if not for that. Hmm. I totally take your point about uh, mobile devices, democratizing connectivity and connections around the world. But I think we saw this a little bit at the beginning of the pandemic when universities were shipping out laptops to all of their students and indeed even some of their faculty to really get them online. So I find it hard to believe that we can expect learners to complete degree programs or even micro degrees on just a a mobile device. And especially if we're talking about, for example, virtual reality enhanced education, which I know is kind of your vision for kind of where this is all going. So is that is that really the case? You know what? You know, whether it's a laptop or a mobile device, I mean, today they cost about the same. You know, a, a smartphone today costs several hundred dollars. Um, a, a, an iPad costs several hundred bucks. And similarly, a, 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 a smartphone costs several hundred bucks. And so in that sense, uh, uh, you know, mobile devices and laptops cost about the same. Uh, but to your point about mobile devices, uh, you know, edX courses are like MOOCs and MicroMasters, MicroBachelors, are fully, avail- fully available on, uh, on handheld uh, uh, devices. And we have many learners who are able to complete these micro-credentials on uh, mobile devices. But that said, yeah. uh, you know, I, I firmly believe that many more people have access to devices, whether it's a laptop or a mobile device and, and a bandwidth plan, uh, than they have access to a, to a quality brick and mortar institution. Um, you know, in the U.S., we have uh, a broad swath of community colleges and so on all over the country, which makes education on campus a little more accessible. But in many countries, you know, you don't have that. And so where, you know, uh, if you don't live in a big city, you know, you're out of luck. And so, uh, uh, you know, I would definitely argue that online and digital technologies will help democrat- democratize education. Now, to be sure, are we fully there yet? No. 
Hmm. But, uh, you know, I, I certainly have a lot more optimism that uh, we will get there with universal access um, in the not too distant future. Okay, final question for you, Anand. Um, and it is going back to, to your, your broader vision about where you're hoping education goes. And it is about augmented reality and virtual reality and, and really using that to enhance higher education. Um, is there also perhaps a bit of ground that needs to be covered in terms of preparing students to learn in that way? And I'm not thinking about the 18-year-olds that are going to come up in the next 10 years. I'm thinking about the 45-year-olds the or the 50-year-olds who are going to be going back to higher education to upskill or to get new degrees. Are they ready for AI and VR enhanced education? Hey, Sarah, I'm uh, 63, I am. <laughs> I think you're an exception. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, I, I, you, know, I, you know, I think that, uh, you know, certainly the, uh, uh, I know you meant, uh, you know, some older folks, but in the younger generation, frankly, you know, my daughter is 22, they are much more comfortable with, uh, you know, uh, I don't know how they can tap away on a little mobile device and send these long, you know, text messages and so on. And I have big fat thumbs and I just can't seem to do it. But the younger generation is very facile with the digital technology and, and they'll be, become very comfortable with AR, VR and the AI methodologies and things like that. So no issue there. And frankly, putting them in a classroom uh, you know, uh, in long rows and so on, I think they will need to be trained in doing that, frankly. Mm. That will be hard for them. But for others, well, all of us need to upskill and reskill and become lifelong learners. And so, you know, I, I don't think it will be hard to, uh, uh, to uh, upskill us in uh, doing all of that stuff. Frankly, it is much harder for a person in their 30s, 40s, 50s, or 60s uh, who has a family, maybe kids, uh, and a job, um, and family responsibilities, for them to take off six months or three months or even a week uh, to go someplace else and travel to go learn in person. To me, that is hard. However, if you tell me that uh, I can do it fully online, hey, you know what? Uh, it becomes much easier for me. And it's a much smaller lift for me to learn some new skills in terms of learning online or uh, you know, wearing a headset or something and, uh, uh, or go to adaptive learning with AI and things like that. It'd be much easier for me to learn that uh, you know, where I can do it out of the comfort of my own home, uh, you know, by evenings or nights and things like that, or weekends, uh, than having to travel to some place and sit in the classroom. You know, uh, I don't think, you know, I used to fidget in classrooms when I was uh, 10. I can't imagine if you put me in a classroom for an hour or two hours, I, I don't know I could do that. So my sense is that it'd be much easier to teach people who are working skills to learn online uh, then it will be to go, you know, into training centers and have them, you know, sit in classrooms. Hmm. Great, Anand. Thank you so much for that. And um, thanks for exploring some of the ideas that you've already put out in, in various other platforms. Um, so it was good to chat with you a bit further about that. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much, Sarah. I really enjoyed the conversation. It's really interesting to hear Anand's perspective um, that he is now so steeped in online learning as the norm for him that actually the idea of going back to the classroom is as alien for him as leaving it was for some academics at the start of the pandemic. So I think it just shows how hugely varied global higher education has become as a sector and kind of in many ways links back to my original point about the fact that 
the pandemic has triggered much greater flexibility and adaptability in, in many different kind of areas. Absolutely. And I think that's that's the one characteristic that um, anybody working in higher education, if they have it, is going to very much come in handy for them as, as universities grapple with digital transformation over the next few years. Um, we've had quite a few academics from around the world reflecting on the past two years in our most recent spotlight on THE campus. So I would encourage you to go and just check out what some of your colleagues around the world would consider their silver linings or any learnings that they want to take with them into the future. You can find all of that at timeshighereducation.com forward slash campus. Thanks for joining us, Miranda. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Good to see you. Yeah, great to chat. And if you have any ideas for the podcast, please do get in touch. Sarah.Custer at timeshighereducation.com. We'll see you next time. Bye. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.